And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So this is going to be a very fun episode, a very enlightening episode, I imagine, for you guys, because I'm going to explore the most deep-seated fear in my psyche, and that is my fear of sharks. Now, I grew up in Chicago, and as most people who are familiar with geography know, that it's kind of landlocked from oceans. Lake Michigan doesn't have a lot of sharks. I didn't really go swimming in Lake Michigan. So where did I develop this fear of sharks, fear of the ocean, is a question that I asked myself several times. And most recently, about a year ago, and I was playing a game where you kind of reveal your, your deepest fears. And I didn't really understand where this came from. And I wanted to. I really wanted to. So what I did is I did kind of like a, a deep dive into my brain to figure out where did this originate? And what I came up with was this story that I read when I was seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that area, that time in your life when your adolescent brain is developing and is malleable and you're able to kind of squeeze it and distort it by all your life experiences and the things you read. And that is where it developed. And that story, the main character of that story, if I can call it that, the, his name is Walter Wyatt Jr. And he survived an incredible ordeal. And I love this story. And I'm talking to him today. I'm very excited about this. So first of all, I'm going to introduce you. Walter, thank you so much for being on the show today. And if you don't mind, right here at the beginning, I'd like to, if you'll indulge me, I'd like to kind of regale you with how I kind of discovered your story and, and what it meant to me. I remember... I was about six or seven years old. I was in my childhood dentist office. And they, it was like the waiting room was kind of split into two different rooms. It was like the kids section and the adult section. I was in the kids section. And I remember this. there was this book on, on the kids table. Obviously, someone's parent had left it there. And it had this, it had a, you know, a person and this great white shark coming up from underneath. And I was just so intrigued by that picture. There was something primal in my brain that was just kind of, you know, lit. It was kind of um, stimulated for some reason. And it said shark attack in big letters. And I remember reading it and, you know, dentists office aren't exactly known for how recent their magazines are. So I don't know how old the Reader's Digest was. I don't remember how old I was, but I remember being like right around six or seven and reading it fascinated. So much so that I asked the person at the front if I could have that copy of the Reader's Digest. And it was so old at that time, they let me have it. And and I took it home. And I remember reading it two or three times. The writing was just so visual. And I remember, we're going to get to some of the, obviously, the details of your story. But, you know, I remember them talking about the dorsal fins cutting the water in the morning that you saw coming at you. And the most vivid memory is you had this leaky life vest and you sank like five feet into the water. And I remember just you know, feeling, feeling like what it would be like to five feet is a really long way to go in choppy seas. And that, and just ever since then, just, I remember this story, light bulb moment that time. 
And, you know, Reader's Digest is also known for inspiring several people. The Lagina Brothers, who are looking into Oak Island, they were inspired by a Reader's Digest article on Oak Island in the 60s. So, you know, lasting impression on my psyche. And also I read Jaws right when I was 10, which kind of, I think, sealed in that first scene, kind of sealed in that Sharks thing. So I don't want, I don't want you to feel too bad that you <laughs> take something off your conscience, yeah, you know. I mean, <laughs> I mean, 100 million people never took a bath again after Jaws. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's not all on you, but but I remember Jaws reading the book Jaws, not the movie, the book and and your story. They really did it. I, I mean, it, you live. We live in a two D world. All of our threats are right in front of us. But in the ocean, it's a three D world, and you got to survive where the air is, which is on top. Which means the entire world, their entire world, is underneath you. So. Um, anyway, and now, that's that's my. I just wanted to kind of tell you why I was, what really my story was with how I found it. So let's start this off right, fascinating noun style. What is your full proper name? Is it Walter Wyatt Jr.? Walter Wren Wyatt Jr. My father was Walter Wren Wyatt Senior. So do you, have you ever gone by Junior, or do you go Walter Walt? Do you like Wyatt? Walt. Just keep it keep it simple. Keep it short, Walt. Um, now you have a you have a son named Walter White as well. Is he the third? He's the third. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Well, my my grandfather was Walter White too. Oh, no kidding. They, somewhere along the line, they ran out of names. I just don't <laughs> understand that. I mean, everybody called Walter Wyatt. <laughs> and if they weren't Walter, they were William. You know, I see Walter Wyatt's great. I don't know if you know. You, you don't seem like a comic book fan. I don't want to prejudge you early, but one of the things Stan Lee did when he was writing all the Marvel comics that are now being turned into, you know, multi-billion-dollar movies, is every character in the universe, all the good guys have alliterations for their names. Uh, so it's you know, it's Walter, it, like P- Peter Parker, Reed Richards, Bruce Banner. You know, and your name fits like right into there. You could. I mean, yeah. you could be a, a comic book superhero, and in some ways, you are a real life superhero. So, like, you fit <laughs> your name fits, man. It's like perfect. Well, I wish I wish my dad was still here because you would have even more fun with him. He was a he was a pilot uh-huh. uh, with with the Flying Tigers. Oh, cool! Uh, he was shot down over Hainan Island in the South China Sea. Uh, he was captured by the communist Chinese guerrillas hung with them for a couple of months the war had been over a month and a half before they rescued him he is 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 quite a character too he, holy cow we've got a we've got a long long family of Taipei first personalities <laughs> and harrowing stories now when you say hung out you mean like he was just like chilling with them like meeting their you know like playing poker or what do you mean well uh, I'll send you some of those memoirs if you'd like to read them. Oh, absolutely. Sometime. What happened was he got shot down on a strafing mission and he bailed out. He got one swing out of his parachute. He was a, uh, a quarter mile dasher in college. Okay. So he said the, the Japanese were, were right on his ass, but he said that they had short legs and he had long legs. <laughs> so he outran them. Wow. He, he went into uh, escape and evade mode, and for 11 days, he lived on one chocolate bar. Uh, he had a, a bunch of adventures while he was uh, uh, escaping and evading. And uh, then um, he, he came across a, a hut 
like a chicky and there are two guys sitting in it. He is starving to death. And he said, well, the heck with it. I'm going to just see what happens. And he went down, plopped down there, passed out. When he woke up, one guy was gone and one guy gave him a little bit of rice. The guy came back, carried him up into the woods or into the jungle. And uh, they met up after a couple of days with a gorilla leader. Uh, he traveled with the gorillas for a month and a half with numerous adventures also. It, 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 he's got a far better story than I do. Mine was 18 hours of hell. His was uh, three or four months of, uh, of pure hell and, and, you know, Japanese all around them and Chinese communists and um, and finally, the, he saw an airplane, spotted it, signaled it with a mirror, kind of like me. And uh, they dropped him a bunch of supplies and radios. And uh, they communicated, met up. The people that were trying to kill him, the Japanese, became their servant until he was able to get out of there. <laughs> wow. The commander of the Japanese unit, he wrote a letter and he said, I'm sitting at the colonel's desk. The colonel's sitting outside on the ground. <laughs> he says, I'm using his ink pen to write you a letter, Mom. Wow. I, I, that is unbelievable. I mean, the Wyatts, man, you guys are hard to kill. This is, I mean, you, wow. <laughs> that is amazing. We've got a long line of warriors in the family. My great grandfather was... Uh, uh, with the 58th Coastal Army Battery during the Spanish-American War. My great-grandfather was with the 15th Virginia Infantry during the Civil War and on back. Wow, that is amazing. Oh, oh Walter Wyatt's and William Wyatt's, huh? Yeah, they're, all, <laughs> they're either John, William, or Walter. <laughs> Going back 400 years, right? <laughs> the founding right. of the country. Holy cow. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've kind of undersold yourself, but not your family, for sure. Your family's amazing. All right, Walter, let's get to your story. You know, I mentioned mine at the top, which how I kind of came across your story, but let's get to yours. But I think to do this justice, to do this properly, we should really start at the prologue. You were in the Air Force, you were in Vietnam, and you were stationed in Selma, Alabama as a fighter pilot. Tell me a little bit about this. Obviously, we talked about how your family was, you know, warrior, the Wyatt Warriors going back, you know, generations. What kind of got you into the Air Force, and, and what was that like? Well, I, was, uh, I went through pilot training in, in Selma. My dad went through pilot training. He went through advanced training in Selma. Uh 30, 30 years, 26 years before me, something like that. Wow, okay. I, I went through my fighter training at Luke Air Force Base in uh, Phoenix. After I was in Phoenix, the Vietnam War had been winding down, and they they weren't sending fighter pilots to Vietnam in, in, in anymore at that time, uh, 1974. But they had a very active uh, campaign uh, against the, the Red Horde in Europe. And so I sat on a nuclear bomb for three years at RAF Woodbridge with the 78th Pack Fighter Squadron Bushmasters 
at RAF Woodbridge in England for three years on a B-61 nuclear bomb. Wow. So that's actually was my main my main career with the Air Force was uh, nuclear. Uh, I, I didn't actually get to go to Vietnam. We deployed to Italy and we deployed to uh, Spain and we deployed to Sicily, but we, and we, everything in mind was either on the nuclear side or on the laser guided bomb side. Now, just, just, so just so I understand this correctly. So in a sense, you were like the pilots who dropped the bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. You were the fighter pilot with the nuclear bomb. And if they said go, you were the one flying off with this nuke to drop it, right? Correct. Wow. Okay. Well, it's a good thing you didn't get called then. That would that would have been a major escalation. How frustrating it was for me to sit on a nuclear bomb for three years and not get to drop it. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, that's wow. I mean, great for humanity, but but I can imagine how frustrating it would be when you when you got, got this level of power underneath you. No, no, I'm just joking. But yeah. each of the bombs were about twenty kilotons. Uh, you know, they dropped it from a B-29 during uh, World War II, but uh, we flew F-4D Phantom jets, and each one carried the same size bomb as they dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, if the balloon had gone up in Europe during that period of time, there would have been 8,000 nuclear explosions within the first couple hours. Wow, that's crazy to think about. I mean, that's that's a weird concept to really... <laughs> get your mind around oh yeah oh yeah luckily you didn't see a lot of action in vietnam no i did not see any action and yet so were you trained in ocean survival at this point is that typical i imagine that's typical of fighter pilots because if you happen to go down over the ocean there's a lot of water on on earth you know yeah i i, I think that uh I, I can't remember anymore but i think most all air force pilots were trained in uh ocean survival and i was trained at Turkey Point, that's where the survival school was. When I went through, it was Turkey Point in uh, Homestead, Florida, which is where I was raised. Right next, right down the street, huh? Right down the road. I stayed at my mom and dad's house with a buddy of mine when we went through. Wow. Wow. That's a, you don't hear that very often. Now, with ocean survival, because usually when you think of like woodland survival, it's about being able to, you know, make your own shelter and, and find your own food and, and find your own water and, and kind of, you know, stay alive indefinitely. I imagine ocean survival is significantly different. It's hard to hunt. There's no real way to make a shelter, obviously. So is the, the focus must be, you know, just conserve energy and stay alive as long as possible, right? Correct. Okay. And and the, the military also had a uh, survival school down the line of uh, of uh, Woodland Survival School at Fairchild Air Force Base. I went through that also. So you had, I mean, so you had a lot of training. You were a fighter pilot. Now, from what I understand, you lived in Homestead, Florida at the, we'll call it the ordeal. So before this, you were living, this is, you know, long after this is in the 80s this is after you've been a fighter pilot did you use those skills were, were you doing um that professionally like were you a commercial pilot at that time or what were you doing um you know after as we as you left the the service and you were kind of transitioning into civilian life around the time of the ordeal well just prior to the or- ordeal i'd been a, a pilot for the uh a small company called air florida okay and i flew for that for five years 
they went out of business and I got on with uh, United Airlines and I flew for them for the rest of my aviation career. Wow. Okay. Okay. So you, you had transitioned. So you were a pilot, a very seasoned pilot during everything. So, um, you know, and I think that that's very important because what you were doing, you were living in Florida at Homestead. You had gone to the Bahamas, to Nassau, and you had a private jet, twin engine Beechcraft, which you would, how many hours do you think you had logged before you took this trip? Guesstimate, I guess. 4,000. Wow. 4,000, 5,000. Okay, okay. So you've been up in the air, you've been up in the air a few times, <laughs> probably not counting your, your fighter pilot training. So... You were an extremely experienced pilot. You were a professional pilot, fighter pilot. And w- so you were in the Bahamas. So you flew from, from uh, Florida to the Bahamas. Now, what were, if you don't mind me asking, what were you doing in the Bahamas? Just hanging out? Was it just like a recreational trip? Let's just say it was recreational. Okay. All right. <laughs> All, right. All right. Wink, wink. Right. No, that's, that's okay. So, but this is, you've done this several times. Now, on a, on a per, in, under perfect conditions, What's travel time like? In, like an hour from Nassau to, to Homestead? Yeah. Okay. So not that far. Routine trip. So you, you're in Nassau. Now Now we're talking, the dates are December 5th, 1986. So you had your Beechcraft, you're in Nassau. Now, what's funny is, in, I, I, what's crazy, is I've read a lot of different accounts of your story. I've seen lots of different videos. It was weird for me to recount that and relive all this stuff because I, I went to research some of the, the uh, specifics that we're going to talk about. It was kind of strange to relive it. But I kind of had to superimpose several stories. So there's a couple things I'm interested about that I think most writers would not be. For example, you were, when you were in the Bahamas, one of the things that's going to be a theme that I'll tie up at the end is your plane had been robbed. So the night before your flight or at some point before your flight back from the Bahamas to Homestead, to Florida, your plane had been robbed and you'd lost a lot of navigation equipment. So what exactly happened there? Well, I don't know. Uh, it's very easy to break into a uh, private airplane. Okay. Very easy. Uh, um I used to have a, a mechanic friend of mine, and he used to carry a, a craftsman toolbox key. And with a craftsman toolbox key, he could get in on almost any door of any airplane. Having a key didn't mean a heck of a lot. So someone went in and stole all my radio equipment. And in the process, they broke the compass, the uh, what we call the whiskey compass, which is just a basic compass that uh you know a boy scout would use to navigate and they'd broken that i didn't realize it i i didn't pay any attention to it it appeared to be a vfr day but in in a fact in fact it was not uh there was a series of thunderstorms coming out of florida that i couldn't see i got a clear clearance from uh nassau uh weather to that it was clear between um nassau and miami and and it was not by the time i got up and got it airborne and and on the way uh i was blocked from getting into florida so you went up with a broken compass and 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 a radio right just a handheld i had handheld radio which is adequate you know that's that that's it a, a radio and a compass under normal circumstance, I imagine you'd rather have all the other stuff, but 
the ease of the flight, the the, the forecast probably gave, was that what gave you the confidence you could make this sixty minute flight? Yeah, yeah, it wasn't even sixty minutes. It was probably, and that airplane is probably thirty five forty minutes. With the compass, it was broken at the time. Did you did it appear to work when you were on the ground? Yeah, it appeared to work. Interesting. Okay. All right. So you so you get up in the air and the so basically storms kind of overtake you. What happens to your compass then? How did you know it was broken? It wouldn't move. Oh, it just was pointing straight. Yeah. I went, you know, I, I just turned and it is I'm not going west anymore. Uh, I know I'm not going west, and it just sat there. Oh, wow. One story said it was gyrating like cra- like it was moving around a lot, but you're saying it was frozen in place. It was it, – it as my recollection goes, it was frozen. Well, this shoots – I wanted to explore a very fun story here, but it, you've, you've shot it all to hell, Walter, and that's okay. Um, but you were flying through the Bermuda Triangle, and one of the kind of interesting things that happens to people is their compasses start going crazy and storms come up out of nowhere. And this kind of fits right into some of this mythology of the Bermuda Triangle. I don't know where I stand on it, but I, I when I started piecing this together, I thought it was very interesting because when when storms kind of storms don't necessarily come out of nowhere in a short period of time, and it seems like that's kind of what happened. Uh, you know, but but maybe it just someone just mis you know misforecast or whatever you'd call it. Well, I was raised I was raised there, and so I was used to the kind of weather you get. However, it was winter. Okay. And winter weather can pop up and move through really quick. Got it. I have flown the Bahamas many, many, many times before. I'd probably flown into the Bahamas dozens of times going different places nassau i had a buddy that had an island down there and we used to fly down there his own island wait he had his own island yeah he owned an island in the bahamas <laughs> wow you're like like a prince or something so you're like royalty man i've never known anyone to own an island that's pretty cool yeah he uh uh it wasn't a huge island but it was his own island and we it had a little teeny runway on it and we used to land on the runway, and then he'd work our butts off, and uh, <laughs> we'd go fishing and diving and all sorts of fun things. Wow. Okay. So you know you know the era very very well. Um, storms popping up out of nowhere it doesn't sound like it's too unusual. So you got into the air. Your compass isn't moving. You got a handheld radio. And how, so how bad were these storms? Like how quickly did these kind of go from clear to clear to dangerous? Well, I you know I'm traveling westbound at 150 miles an hour roughly, mm-hmm. and so it doesn't take long to go. Oh, I can't go through this. Right. So, you know, I make a turn. I make a left turn. So I started going more south, and they started closing in on me. And so, you know, it it was surprising, of course, because I'd gotten a clear weather forecast all the way in. Yeah. But, you know, what can you say? One of those things is one of those horrible things that happen in aviation. You can't make mistakes in aviation. I made a big mistake. The, so the mistake you so you're saying the mistake you made was not having the right equipment or because you can't really the forecast was not really that's out of your control right well it's out of my control on the other hand uh there's this thing in aviation called destination asphyxiation uh-huh. and 
in retrospect, I probably should have waited another week. See, now that airplane had been sitting down there. I wasn't down there with the airplane in Nassau. The week before was the time that I flew into Nassau. So the weather was bad then. I got on a commercial airliner and flew home and went back the next week to bring the airplane back. Oh, I see. And the airplane had the airplane had been vandalized so uh you know a lot of i guess a lot of the stories missed that but you know i I had i had a little bit of time off and i wanted to go get the airplane i didn't like it in the bahamas and obviously for that right right right. your fears were were correct yeah so you you flew it in and then you flew out commercially and then you came back to go grab it went back and pick the airplane up. Yeah. So this is basically just you, you. So this trip was just to haul your plane back home. That's it. I'd had I'd had my party in the Bahamas yeah. a, a week or so before. I see. I see. All right. All right. <laughs> I should go back to get, get the airplane and bring it back. Right. It's kind of like if you go out drinking and you can't get home, you leave your car on the street, and this is just you going and picking up your car. That's really what this was. That's right. You, you get a Uber home, right. and then you go back the next day. <laughs> right, right, right. So this is the plain version of that. Uh, so, all right. So so we're in the air. The, the storms have come around you. They've popped out of nowhere. You're trying to get away from them, and they've kind of overtaken you. Right. So from so at this point, you call for Mayday, and the Coast Guard is dispatched. Now, you end up – I'm probably missing a couple things here, but you end up basically by Sal Island, which is way south. It's like halfway between Cuba and Florida, which is significantly off course. And you had some – and there were some engine things going on as well. So take me from – from where you call the Coast Guard to um, where the engines go? Well, I didn't call the Coast Guard. I, I put out a Mayday. Okay. And an Air, Air Jamaica flight picked it up, and they relayed it. They were at 30,000 feet. Okay. And they relayed it to the Coast Guard, and the Coast Guard came out to get me. Oh, let me pop in here really quickly. So you mentioned the 30,000 feet. That's important because how far are you above the water right now? Where, How high are you flying above the water? About 1,000 feet. Okay. okay. <laughs> Very important to me. Okay. I had to stay below the weather. Right, right, right. Of course. So you're at 1,000 feet. They relayed in. The Coast Guard, um, the, the, the plane comes in. Right. Uh, the plane came in. He intercepted me, and he's the one that flew me south. Oh, okay. I see. I because see. he knew I couldn't get through the weather. So there was a small runway on K-South, and he was taking me to that runway when I ran out of gas. This is kind of part of the story where I, I lose a little bit because I want to know exactly what happened. So you're flying – basically your engine – I mean your, your plane seems to be functioning properly. You you head south. The Coast Guard takes you south to the small island. I believe it's on K-South Island. So does your – one of your engines goes out – I believe, I think, believe it's the right engine goes out and then there's a fuel feeding problem. You have enough gas, but is it, does the other engine then not get the gas? What exactly happens with your engines? Well, you know, over 35 years, I can't remember exactly the transfer system on the, uh, uh, on the beach craft. However, when I hit the water, I still had a quarter tank of gas in one engine. So that engine should not have gone out. But that could have been a uh, uh, indicator problem. It could have been that there was not a quarter tank in there. 
Uh, I don't know if it didn't feed or if there was uh, an indicator problem, but I, I clearly re- remember, and I believe I told the Coast Guard I had a quarter tank of gas left, which would have been plenty of gas. I was only six miles from KSAL when I crashed. <laughs> right. That is like the, oh, that is the worst. I mean, there's a lot of bad parts of the story, but man, six, six miles is nothing when you're going 150 miles an hour. I mean, that is. Yeah, I could see, I could see KSAL. <laughs> oh my God. So, so essentially your plane just for all intents and purposes runs out of gas and, and falls basically coasts into the water. And so you crash into the water. Uh, so this, you know, it's only a thousand feet. You hit the, you hit the, the water. So the first thing that kind of happens in this series of events is you crash, and it's actually a minor miracle that you survived the crash, from what I understand, because you smashed your head hard on the instrument panel. You cut your leg, so you're bleeding from your forehead. You're bleeding from your leg, and and you kind of, I mean, that could have been it. I mean, I assume you had to, you had to get your seatbelt off and get out of the plane. I don't know how quickly it was sinking. You had to get flares and all this. What were, what were those couple minutes like? Like from knowing you're going to hit the water, hitting the water, and then getting on the plane, on the wing. Well, I told the Coast Guard guy that I, I was getting ready to crash, and he said, "Open your door." I thought, "Okay." So I opened my door. Well, when you crash an airplane, the fuselage of the airplane shifts, and it pins the door close many times. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Makes sense. Opening the door. So when I crashed, the door swung open. So the door was wide open. I just undid my seatbelt, grabbed the flares, and went out on the wing and tried to strike the flares, and they wouldn't strike. That So that was that's one of those key things that that's really important, that you had your door open. I mean, that makes – I guess that's the same as if you're going off a bridge in a car, right? I mean, <laughs> your pin door would get pinned. Yeah, right? yeah. And all these electric windows, yep, uh, yep, yep. you know, scattering you gets destroyed your windows are locked i I think about that a lot (laughs) yes that is true uh so now the flare so the flares are another really interesting detail there's so many parts of the details of this and i don't mean to harp on some of these small details these are the things that just go off in my head these are the things that i focus on so if, if i'm understanding it correctly you pop out on you got the flares the coast guard's right on you Right, like he sees you go down. I know it's it's storming. Got to paint it. We got to paint a picture. It's raining. the The sea's crazy. There's rain everywhere. Thunder, lightning, and you pop out on the on the wing. You've done everything right. You grab the flares. From what I understand, you hit one and it doesn't light, and the other one crumbled in your hand. Correct. So you're essentially left on the wing with two useless flares with this plane right there. Couldn't have been more than half a football field away. I think you said 150 feet, maybe. So what was, what was that moment like when you had these things and and how does it crumble in your hand? What was going on there? Well, they were, they were a hand flare and you, you've got a cap on them and you strike the cap off of a primer light. Okay. I've seen cops do that when there's a crash. uh, Yeah. They were an Olin, O-L-I-N flare. And they're what you use in a boat. Okay. And so you'd think they'd be waterproof. Yes, you are water resistant. You would, but they they aren't. <laughs> that, is, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> when else are you going to use it? You're only going to use it on a plane if you're in the water, right? Well, they they hadn't even been wet. Oh my God! Oh geez. They were in a sealed container, a plastic sealed container. So. 
Needless to say, I was a little frustrated and surprised. Well, I read in one place that you you were quoted as saying your first reaction you weren't scared, you were pissed. I believe was that's a direct quote from you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was pissed, no doubt about it. <laughs> oh wow! So all right, so you had these flares; they're crumbling in your hand. So you see the Coast Guard. What what happens with the ship? How close is he to you? Is he circling? What what's going on in those few minutes there? He didn't even see me. I guess the water was so rough, he flew almost right over me. I, if I'd have had a BB gun, I could have shot the airplane, and he never saw me. Oh my God, that is that is that is. Now that I'm, I can, I mean, I can see him in my my memory. I can see how close he was. Right. He wasn't more than 150, 200 feet away. That's crazy. I mean, that's that's half a football field, fifty yards. I mean, it, yeah. that's. But he must. What's crazy is he must have. Seen, he saw you go down, right? Like he saw. He must have seen. No, he didn't. No, he did not. Oh, oh, oh. He did not see me. He he was heading. He was leading me towards the island. So I said I was going down. He immediately turned around. He flew right back over me, but I was in the water. Okay, okay, that makes a lot the of sense. Now the airplane was still afloat when he went over, but he. These were rough enough that he couldn't see it. He eventually takes off, right? Like he searches, he's out of there because it gets, the the storm is, so how bad is this storm then? Um, well, what he did was he was low on fuel. He had rescued another pilot. Oh God. Okay. That one mission. And he came down to rescue me. If he had come immediately, we wouldn't be having this discussion. I see. <laughs> but he had rescued another pilot, and he came down and joined up with me, and then I crashed, and then he flew over. But he is low on fuel. He had to go home. So he left. He made one pass, as we say in the military, one pass haul ass. And on the way out, he called in for a rescue C-130. And the C-130 was low on gas too, just like me. So the C-130 made one pass dropping flares. And that's when I knew I was in trouble because his pass was more than a mile and a half or two miles away. I could barely see him. Oh, okay, okay. And he made one pass dropping flares. But he was so far away, there wasn't any chance. And heck, by then my plane had sunk. And there was no way he was going to see anything, any part of me. So now at this point, can you still see the island? No. Okay, so you've lost sight of the island. And from your your military training, you I believe you were quoted as saying, you realize your chances of being found in the first hour are great. After that, it very quickly drops to zero. And you've got two planes that are there flying back. Now, I should also mention this is during the 70s, and I think there were oil embargoes. So, you know, not to be funny here, but gas was pretty expensive. So it actually doesn't surprise me that gas was the issue during this this historic time period. Um, but they so they go back. Now, you're in, now you're in the water. You've got other planes are, are, are gone. Your, your ship is sunk. Um, what is your first instinct at that moment? How long I could survive, that is about it. You know, uh, I knew, you know, your hopes go down really quick, really quick. And all you're doing is you're not thinking about your 401k. You're thinking about how long can I survive in this situation? Right. 
pretty it's pretty abysmal. You know, what I mean, yeah. you go from a different you you take a different attitude when you're near death or facing death, no matter what it is, no matter if you're going to be eaten by a shark or or fried in the uh, in a fire somewhere. You know, you don't worry about anything other than the moment. Well, it's such a I mean, it is such a shocking change of events, right? I mean, 45 minutes ago, you were on clear skies heading to Florida. And 45 minutes later, you're in the middle of a rough ocean with a storm and help has missed your mark by a mile and has taken off to go get gas. And you don't even know if they're going to come back. That's a big, shocking life change very quickly. Yeah, that, that, I, don't, I don't even know what the, that's like. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing that, I mean, I think you really put a, put a good description as to what your mindset would be. But I imagine you're a family of warriors, and so thinking of surviving is the key here. And one of it is, is basically conserving energy, right? Like you thought, how long can I survive? And then you set little goals for yourself, right? Like I believe this happens at like 8 o'clock, right-ish? Six-ish. Uh, okay. So now let's, let's take stock here. So there's a couple of details I want to go through here that I think are really interesting. So first of all, you have a life vest, right? So you have a life vest from the plane. I don't know at what what at what point does the life vest become faulty? What happens there? This is the you've ridden on an airliner, right? You've had the flight attendant blow in the tube. I've yes, I've seen that at the front. They put it over their head. They show you how to put the straps on. Mm-hmm. They show you how to inflate it if the CO two cartridge does not inflate it. That's the exact flight vest that I had. Life vest. Okay. The exact same one. They sell them, you know, you can buy them on any aviation deal. So I had one of those. Uh, it failed in 45 minutes. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. And when you say fail, essentially the tube falls off, the blow tube, right? Right. One fell off first, and then the next one fell off. And those fill up, just, just very quickly, um, those fill up two separate chambers and it's those two chambers of air that keep you buoyant and above water, correct? Correct. Okay. So you're swimming, and they so they fall. Both of them fall off within 45 minutes. Now I, I got to tell you that is does not give me a lot of confidence <laughs> of using these things. <laughs> no, you know, insurance companies don't want to deal with injured survivors. <laughs> oh, God. It's so dark, Wyatt. It's so dark. All I can think of is, you know, I mean, they are somehow heat sealed in there. Uh, they're not meant to last very long. They came out. I think I stuffed them in my back pocket. I don't remember anymore. Okay. But I had a problem because I didn't have any light. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, I, one came out before the other one. So when one came out, I went, oh, no big deal. I've got this other one. Then another one went out. So I took the life vest off my head, and I used it as a surfboard. But what I had to do was I had to find those blow tube holes. Right, yeah, yeah. So I ran the life vest down my face and used my tongue to find the holes. And then I would blow the holes up and stuff a finger in one. And then I'd find the other one and blow it up and stuff a finger in the other one. Now, they were never fully inflated, but it allowed me to put it under my chest and surf with it 
Wow. And so, so there's like a, a little, um, a little valve there, correct? So, so that you, you didn't have to get water out of the chambers. You just have to put air into it, correct? Well, you could have gotten, I had water in the chambers. You squeeze it out. Okay. Oh, jeez. All right. Because there's a hole where there's a hole where the blow tube went. So what I would do is I I would use my tongue to find where the blow tube had been. Once I did that, I blow into the uh, hole and fill it up and put my finger in the hole, which would last for you know twenty thirty minutes, and then I'd do the same thing again over and over and over all night. Wow. That's ins- I mean, and that was that's what was keeping you alive is blowing into this, uh, blowing into this vest. Now, also, you got rough seas. The the dangerous. I mean, there's several dangerous parts of the ocean, but the most dangerous part of the ocean is human beings can't breathe underwater. So oxygen is at a premium, and you've got to, as a matter of your survival, use that oxygen to blow up a vest. How, so how often were you doing this? Like every ten minutes, every fifteen minutes? Oh, I don't remember exactly. Multiple times. One would go down because it'd leak around your finger, obviously your finger. And uh, and so I'd, I'd blow it up and get on top of it again. Uh, it was not ever full. It was partially blown up. And it would keep me buoyant. But... The time that you mentioned where I went five feet underwater was during the time where I was trying to get the life vest off my 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 head. Oh, during this period. So you tried to get it off and then you sunk like five feet underwater, right? Right. Or more. That, and that to me, that was a very scary moment. I think I had a very close call when I was a kid uh, in, a, in a lake once. And I remember what it was like to be five feet underwater or so looking up at the surface and knowing you had to get there, or you were going to die. And I can only imagine that added on to what you were already feeling. Is just uh, that just stuck out in my head. So two kind of crazy things happen at this point. You you kind of become religious, don't you? I mean, this in this. I think I read someplace that you prayed you would die of hypothermia and not a shark attack. Is that when this happens? Yes. Well, uh, let me tell you something. That foxhole religion comes quick. It, I didn't wait. I, I wasn't waiting to pray to to, to the great master uh, until that happened. I, I, I mean, I hit the water and realized I was gonna probably gonna die, and I started giving prayer. Um, you know, and I didn't I didn't even know the Lord's prayer, but I made it up. And I imagine you were not religious beforehand. This sounds like a crazy question, but did you, were, are you still religious to this day? Like, did that change your outlook on religion itself? And, I mean, you needed divine, divine intervention, and, you know, it seems like you got it. Does, did that hold true till, till now? Not, not till now. I, I became fairly religious after that. Uh, I, I still have a, a, a deep uh, unity with, with Jesus Christ, but I'm not divine or a deacon or anything like that i occasionally attend church but i pray every day i pray i i don't forget because i was given a a chance so you 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 become religious immediately and you also took from what i understand you took like your id badge and you basically scratched out your last will and testament and a note to your family right at this point with your watch strap no, no. What I what I did was I had an ID badge with my name on it. I rolled it up 
and shoved it through the blow tube of the life vest because I figured the life vest, even if it was deflated, it was a, a, a plastic and it would float. And they would be looking around for me. And if I wasn't on the surface, they would find the life vest and they could find my ID and know that that was who the life vest belonged to. So I, I took that life vest and, and put an ID in it. So you didn't, so you didn't scratch um, your, so in two stories I read that you, you scratched out Trish house, basically saying that she would get the house, which is kind of like a last will and Testament, right? Is that, did that not happen? Yeah, that was, that was my girlfriend. But you did scratch that out, right? Right. Right, I did. Okay. I you know, it's when I read that I was wondering if that is a legally binding document. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but I wondered, you know, that was one of the weird thoughts went through my head is I wonder if they would actually if that would hold up in court. Uh, obviously you're not thinking about that at the time. I'm not suggesting you would, but I just when I, I was thinking about that when they found it what they would do with that. Then you also wrote uh, a numeric code 143MDJWY which is basically the numeric code for I love you and those are members of your family. So those are all the, you, you were you were prepared to give your last message out to people at this point. Right. So that's eight o'clock. So that's that's how <laughs> we've been talking for a while. But that's how you started basically the next fifteen hours. I, I read in one story that you were pulling parasites off of your leg. Is this true? And what parasites were you pulling off? I imagine it happened at this point between your your eight p.m. and nine a.m. or whatever. Yeah, there there was some kind of a sea parasite that would bite you. It's like a sea flea or something like that. Ugh. They they weren't horrible. It gave me something to do. <laughs> Kept you busy. Kept the mind busy. Yeah, I mean, you know, there is if you're you're trying to survive, anything that you can do keeps you with a little bit of hope, like blowing up the damn life vest right. or picking parasites off. Uh, the phosphorus in the water was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. I mean, the waves. The waves are bad, and that phosphorus is rolling across the waves. Yeah, and then the I could hear barking dogs. Wait, so wait, you heard barking? So they must have been coming from the island then? No, it's what seafarers have heard in the past. Is they they claim they heard dogs barking at night. Whoa, that's crazy! I've never heard that before. Is that what's that caused by? I have no idea. I think Columbus wrote about it. And you heard that. You heard dogs barking. Yeah. Wow. Maybe it's some sort of like sea mammal or like a dolphin or a whale or something. I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. I have no idea. So, at, so at this moment, now, now the key thing here is you, you, you hit your head and your leg is bleeding. You're picking parasites off. The waters are rough. So the way I understand this story is there were probably sharks around you because sharks, I think it's one part per million that they can detect blood in the water, which is just, I mean, how highly tuned are these are these creatures at, at sensing blood? One part per million is insane. So there probably were sharks around sensing the blood, but the waters were rough. And so, you know, you spent the night, you know, Writing the writing the stuff, trying to stay alive, and then at what point did the seas kind of calm down? Uh, it was about daylight when the seas calmed down. You know, when the sun started to come up, I could see fin, and it was calm. Wow. Okay. So immediately, like the 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 sun comes up, and so it, was it. Was it basically, I mean, you know, obviously there's no lights. Dark, most people don't know what real dark looks like. And if you're in the middle of the ocean, 
that's real dark. You, you can't see underneath you. Um, you don't know what's underneath you. That alone should be enough to drive a person insane. Uh, but you also can't see anything above you. You can't see anything on the water. So you're saying when dawn comes up, the sun just hits over the horizon. You saw dorsal fins at that point? Yeah. Yeah, well, I didn't really see any dorsal fins at first, but I saw a shark go under me, and it was very close, so I kicked it. And it wasn't happening like boom, boom, boom. So I kicked it, and it it went, hey, there's something wrong here. And then you swam off. But then I was looking to my right and I felt something brush against me. And I looked over and there was a shark had just went by me and brushed up against me. And so I, I jumped, the shark moved. And then over the next hour or so, I saw a huge, huge tail, probably three or four feet wide, stick up in the air. I said, what the hell is that? And the tail went down and a head came up above the water of a huge, huge shark. I'm talking 14 feet. And it was a a Mako shark. And it dove back down. And that was the shark when the Coast Guard got there that they saw swimming close by waiting. I mean, I, I got to tell you, my, my mouth is getting dry. I'm at, my hands are actually starting to sweat. And you're telling me a story that happened 35 years ago. I couldn't even imagine being in that situation. Was it part of your training? Because this wouldn't seem natural to me. That's why I'm asking. Was it part of your sea survival training to kick the sharks? I mean, and I don't mean that to be funny. Was it, is it part of, you know, you have to strike first so that they know you're not easy prey? Was that part of the mentality? My first instinct wouldn't be to kick a shark swimming by me. No, that was not part of training. Okay. So did you do it out of fear, out of aggression, out of anger, out of desperation? Probably desperation. You know, I figured if they got close enough, they might take a test bite. Right. And I wasn't going to let them take a test bite without a fight. Just so I can have people that are clear on this. So from what I understand from the stories, and I'm curious how you were able to identify it, but you were surrounded by two bull sharks and a mako shark. And just some quick things about bull sharks. First of all, there are three major shark threats to man, three sharks that are most likely to predate on humans. And that's the great white shark, obviously, the tiger shark, which have been known to, they've found license plates in their stomach, so they'll eat anything, and bull sharks, (laughs) Bull sharks are number three on that list. This is also something I found interesting. They have the strongest bite of all sharks. In some some places, you'll see the great white place slightly above at 4,000 PSI, but a bull shark at 3,800 PSI, they rank fifth of all time. I mean, there's three crocodiles at the top three on that list, and then there's bull sharks. So you have an aggressive shark. They live in shallow water or salt water. They've been known to go as far north as Alton, Illinois, uh, very close to, to where I grew up. Uh, they found one, flew, went up the Mississippi River. So there's a shark in the Mississippi River, 1937. That's the first type of shark that's surrounding you. The second is a mako. Now, makos typically don't attack humans. As I read that there, there were only nine human attacks between 1580 and 2017. Only nine uh, in that 400-year period. One was fatal, but... 
The mako shark is the fastest shark on Earth. They can swim up to 60 miles per hour, which is roughly the speed of a cheetah. Uh, I think cheetahs hit like 70 on, on land, and you can see them coming. But a mako, 60 miles per hour when you can't see them coming, and this thing popped out of the water and was staring you down, that had to have been... I, I mean, I can't even imagine what that moment was like. His eyes were as big as a uh, coffee cup. Now, understand this. I was raised in Homestead. I, I had been snorkeling uh, my whole life, and I got my first scuba license in 1970. Um, I, I, I got a scuba license in 1970. So, you know, I, I, I knew my fish. I've been spearfishing many years before this ever happened. So I knew what sharks were and which shark was which. I was curious how you were able to identify them, um, but that sounds like you were you you've been around them a lot. Um, but at this point, your eyes are also swollen from salt water, right? I mean, like you were your body was taking a physical toll. Being in salt water will also dehydrate you. There's a lot of physiological things that are going on. Uh, so how now? How long would you say you were fighting and kicking these sharks off? Oh, probably. Uh, I probably only kicked two sharks the whole time, but I could see I could see them around. I knew they were there. Um, at that time, I was in water that was uh, less than 20, 30 feet. I could see the bottom at one time. Oh, my God. So you could see all this going on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, man. That's crazy. Uh, so you could see them like, you know, circling and swimming. Yeah, they and my eyes, I could see, but the, I guess you could say the acuity of my eyes had been degraded because they, when the Coast Guard plane came by, he dropped a flare within, I don't know, I, I never saw it, but there was a flare within a hundred feet maybe of me. Okay, okay. Uh, blowing smoke out of it, and it was a big flare, I'm several feet long, floating in the water, blowing smoke out of it. And I never saw one drop of that. Wow, <laughs> cow. that's. But I could see now when the Coast Guard boat came up, I could see him, you know, a hundred yards away. Well, so this must have been kind of an interesting thing for you because you're you're fighting off these sharks. And, and you know, you have to think like one kick. I mean, you have to be accurate. One kick and that's it, right? I mean, like if you don't kick it, it's going to eat you. I'd be afraid it'd kick right into its mouth. But, um, you know, you're, you're literally fighting for your life here. During this, this moment, you've been spotted by the Coast Guard. They've come back in the morning and they're, you know, right at dawn, they're looking for you. They see you drop a flare and then they send out a boat to come grab you. And, you know, I believe you probably learned this later on, but they saw the Mako shark stalking you and gave, you know, gave orders to the Coast Guard to get out. They think they were 12 minutes out and they they had orders to get there as soon as possible because this long, I think it was a 14 foot long Mako shark was was, um, was looking to take you out. Yeah, well, they had guns out when I got there. I, I I saw the guy on the front of the boat with a gun. I went, I'm unarmed. I'm unarmed. <laughs> you were right by Cuba during the Cold War, so. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but I was pretty delirious at the time. You know, I wasn't thinking very straight. I didn't shimmy up the ladder either. It really pissed, pissed the Coast Guard guys off. They had to go down the ladder 
and pull me into the boat because I couldn't get up the ladder. The Coast Guard, I mean, come on. They're upset at you for surviving a shark attack and staying afloat for 15 hours? They can't pop down and drag you into the boat, for God's sake? They got their feet wet, and it was a football day, and they wanted to get back to Key West to uh, watch a football Unbelievable. game. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. So they, but they, but they yank you, uh, but they had guns. So, so they had guns on this boat. You saw them. They were there to, to basically to shoot the sharks because they had been given orders that there were several that were surrounding you. I mean, it's like in the movies when you see them like literally sur- making a circle, swimming a circle around you, right? Well, what I understood later, the, the gun deal was that at certain times or in some time in the past, when they're getting ready to rescue somebody, the sharks go into kind of like a frenzy mode and they attack you right before they get. Oh, wow. So that's what they were doing. Uh, They were, you know, obviously um, they weren't worried about me. I've been, I was like a jelly donut. Well, you definitely don't want the guns to be for you in case you get in, the sharks start attacking you and they want to put you out of your misery. Like <laughs> that's not what you want either, you know, zombie movie style. So, um, so basically, that was like nine a.m. by by the time you were picked up and put into the boat. And what, it's funny because you know we talk about this life vest. This life vest kept you alive in the Reader's Digest article, which I'll, I'll put on the website so people can read what what affected me so profoundly, was you basically, they wanted you to drop the life vest, and you were like, I'm going, this vest goes where I go, because this thing kept you alive. Was that true? Yeah, I kept the life vest. I don't have it anymore. got misplaced years ago. Oh, my goodness. I would, yeah, I would, I'd probably, I imagine for about two or three years after that event, I would just wear that life vest wherever I went, just over my clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would. That life vest, I don't know, you know, you got to think about uh, that 18 hours of uh, 17, 15, whatever it is, uh, was a bad memory. It was a really bad memory. Yeah, I mean, they said, I mean, I read one thing, you went to the hospital, you were exhausted, but you didn't sleep at all. My mind goes back to this really funny Simpsons episode where Homer decides Bart wants a clown bed, so Homer decides to build him his own clown bed, but Homer's a horrible carpenter. So he makes this very scary, terrifying clown bed. And the next scene is Bart saying, can't go, can't sleep. Clowns will eat me. Can't sleep. Clowns. And I yeah. imagine you must have been like that. I can't sleep. Sharks will eat me. I didn't sleep. Uh, you know, they, they had me in Key West by, I don't know, early afternoon. And um, I think I got to sleep sometime that night but I didn't fall asleep on the ride from Key West back to Homestead at all. And you must have been, I mean, just in shock and jacked up on, on adrenaline. I mean, your body must have just been at the absolute point of collapse. But you, you made it. I mean, you, you did it. I, you know, and what, what's, what's amazing to, to me, so this is what I wanted to tie up. So this entire ordeal, it seems to me from an objective viewer, as, a com- as completely caused almost almost exclusively by equipment failure, right? Your compass didn't work. The fuel line to your your engines didn't work. The engines didn't work themselves. The flares didn't work. The life vest didn't work. Whatever equipment that your meteorologists out there were using to detect the storms didn't work. Almost at any point along that list, if one of those pieces of equipment had survived, had, had worked properly, a lot of this wouldn't happen, which, again, goes back to uh, the Bermuda Triangle or Gremlins. That's all I got. Those are my explanations for everything. But um, have you ever thought about that, the equipment failure aspect of that? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, but as a, a long-time pilot, I also realized that I had an equipment brain failure. Uh, at any point in time along that timeline, before the before I took off out of Nassau, I could have canceled that whole trip, and this would be nothing. But I was lulled into it, and then you throw the rest of the stuff in, and the definition of probably half of the airplane crashes that ever happened is that at any point in time along the timeline before the crash, it could have been prevented. And I could have prevented it, but I got that old destination asphyxiation. I wanted to get my airplane back. And so you throw all of that in together, like with almost every airplane crash, there's a sequence of events. Take the Pakistan crash that just happened a month ago. They were talking about COVID-19. They were probably not experienced pilots. They forgot to put the gear down. They landed the airplane without the gear. Instead of just sucking it up and letting it slide down the runway, they pushed the throttles up. They took off again. The engines had been damaged. If they had just pulled the throttles back and slid, no one would have died. The engines were damaged. They flew around, tried to land. The engines quit. They crashed into houses. As a result, one person on the ground died. Every person in the airplane died. There's this funny Louis C.K. stand-up thing where he talks about uh, – and I'll, I'm, I'm going to put this on the website because I think people, after hearing that story, will find this uh, – I don't. it's more like gallows humor now that you've, <laughs> you've just said all that. But there's this funny stand-up that he does where he talks about this time when he was on a plane – and basically how they were sitting on the runway and the fuel gauge didn't work, but the, the pilot decided to go anyway. They were pretty sure they had enough fuel. They were flying into a storm with low visibility. And basically every series of events you should be that, that should have caused a crash, at the end of it, it does not cause a crash. But it's, you know, it's a very funny stand-up, but it points to this, what you're saying, which is most of these, not most, but a lot of these are extremely preventable. And it's, it's well, like you said, it's people wanting to either get home or whatever the reason is that they go through with it and, and it causes a crash and, and people lose their life and it's tragic. Uh, but it's, it's, it's way more common than I think people believe. We're at our hour here for the main story. Do you have time to stick around? There's a lot that came out after this, including what happened to your plane. Uh, do you have 10 minutes to stick around and talk about the epilogue to this story? Sure. Okay, awesome. I want to thank you for, for telling me this part of the story. Again, this has just been... I mean, an honor to talk to you. I mean, it's so weird to think that I read the story as a kid and I'm talking to the the person who experienced this. And I mean, just an amazing act of survival. And to know that you come from a long list of warriors. At first, I thought that this was kind of an improbable survival story. But now it seems like it was an inevitable survival story. You were destined to have this or you wouldn't be a Walter Wyatt. I think I don't think you'd be an official Walter Wyatt without this story. <laughs> One of the many Walter Wyatt. Right, right. Long list of warrior Walter Wyatts. So, Walter, you know, thank you so much for, I know this is a tough story to share even 35 years after the fact, um, but I want to thank you for sharing it with me in the audience. 
and and just being an inspiration for me and to everyone. So thank you for being on the show today. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show, you don't ever want to miss another episode. you got to subscribe. I've made it very easy. First of all, I'm on all the major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. And if you're not already working with those particular platforms, I've got links on my website, fascinatingnouns.com. That's where you want to go for all the updates. You can subscribe to the show. You can follow the show on social media. Got links to the show's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages. You can find all of the links at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. But also there's a wealth of information, not only on this show, but on every show that I've ever done. At the top of the page, you'll find links to previous episodes, previous guests, Everything you need to know is right there on that page. And if you like this show, I think you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.